Amen. All right, 1 Peter 3 to 12, God's Word says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Family, have you ever just stopped paused for a moment and marveled at the grace and mercy of God. Just stopped for a second. Like really just stopped your life and thought about how amazing God really is. God is the creator of all things. He spoke things into existence He's a masterful artist, orchestrator, and composer. And in his love and kindness, he created us in his image, and his word says, and in his likeness. And though we have all sinned and and fallen short of the glory of God, he has, in his grace and mercy, his word says that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter gets this and captures this in the beginning part of verse 3, and it brings us to our main idea for the morning. Our main idea is this. Peter's song of praise leads uh, Christians to understand their reason for hope. That's the title of our message, the reason for hope. Peter writing to, we've got to get in the context here of what's going on. Peter writing to a group of persecuted Christians launches just a few sentences in into a huge song of praise, and it's a huge song of praise, but with simple words. He says this, the beginning part of verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God here. He's saying, Blessed be you, Lord. I praise you, God, the question, have you ever just stopped for a moment and marveled at how amazing God is? That's what Peter's doing. That's what we're capturing here. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can this man, that is Peter, who has faced so much adversity in life, writing to a people, okay, we learned last week these were scattered people, okay, out out in the land, scattered people who knew Christ but were suffering for their faith, so writing to a people who are facing persecution and suffering, and in the midst of that writing, Peter launches into a boast to God. Praise be to you, Lord. I praise you, God. A church family, don't you want that kind of hope that would cause you in the midst of suffering and persecution to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want some of that. I want some of that hope. In the midst of dire circumstances. And not only personal dire circumstances, but he's, he's writing a letter to a group of people who are suffering, right? Sometimes it's, we can endure suffering. It's like, I'm just going to grin and bear it. I'm just going to work through it. But when you see someone that you love suffering, and that's tough. And yet, in this letter to those who are suffering, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. On Friday, I was privileged to be able to go and visit an, an older member of our congregation in, in the hospital. I suffered a personal injury uh, this past week and, and got to spend some time with her. And you go, as a pastor, you know, you go in and your job is to go in and encourage people when they're in the hospital to help them along when they're struggling. But inevitably what happens oftentimes when you, when you go in to minister to a mature follower of Christ, you end up being ministered to by them. And so I go in and I'm visiting with this, this lady and I'm sharing scripture with her and I actually read this passage because I, I was praying in the morning before I went and visited her. And I'm like, God, give me a passage of scripture to share just with her. And God said, hey, you're preaching it this weekend. Share that one with her. Okay, so, so I take this passage of Scripture, I read it to her, and I look at her, and her eyes kind of well up with tears, and she looked at me and she said this. She said, I love God. She's in the hospital. She's in pain. Really kind of immobile, can't move around. What's her response? Woe is me, Lord! No. She responded to the word of God and she said, I love God. She hit me right here. She showed me what it's like to have hope. I love God. Peter says, blessed be you, Lord. And so we're going to look at, at four reasons. How can Peter have this kind of hope, and how can he hand off this hope to the people he's striving to minister to? Okay, we're going to look at, at four reasons for Peter's hope. The first one is this. He has a hope that is living. A hope uh, that is living. I get excited when I come to a passage of Scripture, and I see the word resurrection in it. 
Because as we preach verse by verse, then I get to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that excites me more in the Bible than to talk about our living Savior. Jesus rose from the dead. We have, family, a hope that is living. He's not dead. He's alive. The second half of verse 3, it says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, hear this, what kind of hope is it? A living hope. A living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The foundation family of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter here is stating that our, our salvation, or as he says it, he says to be what? Born again. Okay, we identify as born-again Christians. He says to be born again is through the resurrection of Jesus. In essence, uh, it's our salvation is contingent on that truth. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it's the foundation of our faith. That we worship a living Savior. Okay, Buddha's in the grave. Confucius is in the grave. Muhammad's in the grave. Jesus is alive. Our greatest hope is that Christ raised from the dead, defeating the tyranny of sin and death. Church, death could not hold him. Therefore, our hope is not dead. Peter says we have a living hope. A living hope given to those who are born again. That is, those who are saved through faith in the work of Jesus. What does that mean? In the life, death, and what? Resurrection of Christ. Paul says this in Romans 6, 4-5. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that means we've died to sin, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We have raised to new life in Jesus. Why do these men both point to the resurrection of Jesus so often in their writings, Paul and Peter? Because it's, it's crucial to understand that Jesus is truly our living hope. Our living hope. Through his resurrection, we're assured of eternal life because he is alive and he is the first fruits. We have that inheritance of life with him. We're assured that we have a living hope. And so all other hope in this passage springs from the resurrection. Okay, for the gardeners in the room, when you plant a garden, okay, the soil is incredibly important that you put the seeds into, right? It needs to be healthy. It needs to have nutrients in order for the plant to come up. Our hope springs out of the soil of the resurrection, it's the foundation of our faith. It's the most important component. We have to have the resurrection of Jesus, or if that didn't happen, then we're all a bunch of fools. That's the reality. But church, it did happen. Jesus raised from the dead. 
I can imagine Peter. You've got to think about the context in which this, this letter was, was written. It's, it's likely that, that Peter wasn't a very learned man as far as uh, writing skills go. He was a fisherman, just kind of a normal guy. There's some evidence in this, in this letter. The, the Greek in this letter is, is incredibly good in the original letter. It's probably too good for Peter to have just penned it himself. We believe it was authored by Peter, but likely it was authored as he spoke the words that he wanted put down, put down to another person. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Silvanus helped him. Silvanus, we believe, is actually Silas, which was also Paul's partner in ministry. Okay, so I think there's, there's sufficient evidence that this is Peter's words, and he had someone there that could write really good, and Peter's explaining to him, this is, what, this is what I want you to put down to encourage these Christians. And so I want, I want you to come in the room with me. you got Peter and Silas, and, and he's dictating this, this letter to Silas. We also know that Peter's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking these words. He's thinking through and he's working through the, the encouragement to offer these Christians who are suffering and being, being persecuted. And then I can imagine the thought comes to his mind. The thought Peter hears as he's talking, the thought enters his mind that his, his friend rose from the dead. He resurrected. That he has witnessed Jesus himself walking, talking, eating, and teaching, that thought enters Peter's mind, and he's like, this is amazing. Let me encourage the church with this, this good news. Peter then burst out. I can imagine Silas is trying to write, like, hold on, Peter. I'm trying to write this stuff down. He bursts into this, this song of praise in the, in the presence of Silas. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says, that's it. Encourage him through that. How can we be certain of this excitement from Peter? Here's, here's a reality that we don't capture in our English translation. If you were to read this in, in its original Greek form, verses 3 all the way to 9, put your finger on each one of those chunks there in your Bible. Okay, it's a pretty long section there. In the original language, it's all one sentence. All the English teachers in the room just kind of cringed a little bit. I can remember when I was a kid, I used to dread when my teacher would make me write, you know, you got to write a short story. Oh, gosh. And so you're sitting there, and you got writer's block, and you're like, I don't know what to talk about. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, you, you kind of, okay, do some. The teacher comes over, helps you a little bit. Hey, why don't you write on this? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Start writing. And then what happens when those words start to flow, right? And then you end up with one long, run-on sentence, don't you? Peter's excited. He's so excited that he just goes off. Silas, write this down. Silas, write this down. Let's talk about the resurrection. I can just imagine Peter's passion as he's dictating this letter and the excitement of these Christians as they they read this encouragement from one of Jesus' closest friends. They're hearing from Jesus' closest friend. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. 
And so by the resurrection, we have this, our second point. We have a hope that is promised and protected. We have a hope that is promised and protected. Verses 4 to 5, it's continuing on. It says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power... Did you hear that? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This next section draws out this inheritance language. If you think about it, you know, people, when they, they start getting older and they have some stuff, they have some assets, maybe they have a home or they have a little bit of money set aside in savings, what do they do? They write a will, don't they? Because they don't want all their kids and grandkids killing each other over who's going to get what. So they write down exactly like this person's going to get, you know, the little stuffed cat that grandma bought. And this person's going to get the little statue. And this person's going to get the house and the bank account. And so they write out a will. And so we have this idea of inheritance. The, the will is the, the directions of, of somebody leaving an inheritance for others. And then Peter declares that this inheritance in Jesus is so certain. He uses three words here. He says this about this inheritance that we have through the resurrection of Christ, through faith and salvation in Jesus. When we are born again, we have these things. He says our inheritance is, hear this, imperishable is the word. that he. What does that mean? When you go and you buy vegetables from the store, what happens if you leave them out on the counter way too long? They start to perish, right? You stack them all, the tomatoes do this the most. You stack them all up in a bowl, but you didn't realize the one on the very bottom had some weird black stuff growing on the side. And then what happens? It all kind of spreads through. They start to rot. They're, they're perishable. But Peter says that the inheritance that we have through Jesus is what? It's imperishable. Okay? It won't rot. It is permanent. Forever. He says this about the inheritance. He says it's undefiled. Okay, what does that mean? It's pure. It's spotless. It's unblemished. Then lastly, he says it's unfading. Okay, guys, your wife can tell the difference from when you go and buy the flowers from Kroger and when you actually go to the florist because... What happens when you buy the flowers from Kroger and then the next day you set them on the counter, they're in the vase, and the next day you walk out and that that rose is like, it's fading away, isn't it? But hey, they were $6.99 for a dozen. I can go buy you new ones tomorrow. You go spend $50 at the florist. For some reason, they have some sort of magic dust. They sprinkle on those things. They last a lot longer, which they should, 50 bucks for a flower. I mean, come on. Okay, they don't, she is worth it. They don't, they don't fade away as fast. But the inheritance that we have in God, it says, is unfading, eternal. The light never goes dim, the flower never wilts. We see a promise here. I want to I point out the promise to you. Salvation is kept for us. It says, by God's power, we're being guarded through faith. 
just before that, it says that it's kept in heaven for you. Did you notice that? By God's power. That's a promise. Salvation is kept for us in heaven. What does that mean? It's safe in Christ. He's holding on to it for you. You have it through faith in his work, and it's guarded by God. Your inheritance is secure. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. We can trust that God is protecting our salvation. And we are certain of this because we are sealed with something. When we follow Jesus, his word tells us that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit has indwelt us as a deposit, as a guarantee that our salvation is kept for us by God, guarded by God. You see, church, because our hope is is that our salvation is not ultimately dependent on us, but it's dependent on a work, on the work of another who represented us, Jesus Christ. He came and lived perfectly in our place. He died a criminal's death on the cross, atoning for our sin, and he rose from the dead on the third day. And we can have security in him through faith in his finished work. We have confidence in a God who has promised our inheritance, and he protects it for us. Psalm 121.7 says this, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Anybody ever had something in their life like, it just didn't make sense? Like things should have just ended there? I used to have this real nice, pretty red Jeep Wrangler. It was lifted with a soft top on it. And I'm driving home one day. I'm sitting at a stoplight to turn left, and a three-quarter ton Chevy pickup truck blew through a red light going 90 miles an hour. And he hit a dip, and he caught air. And he hit the, front, the top front of my Jeep, and I ducked down, and I kissed myself goodbye as that truck ripped the top of my Jeep off and then landed on a car behind me. There were seven people in that accident that were airlifted. I sat up, and I opened the door, and I walked away without a scratch on me. There's some things where you're just like, okay, God, he will keep your life. What do you want me to do? I'll go anywhere you want me to. I mean, I don't know, in that fraction of a second, from the time I'm sitting there looking at him coming at me, I planned my whole funeral as I went down like this. I want this song played at the beginning, this song played in the middle. Close me out with some Stevie Ray Vaughan, playing some blues. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The inheritance of salvation in Jesus is fully assured, guarantee you will receive all that God has promised because God always keeps his promises. He's faithful. And yet we have a hope that is this, our third point. Our hope is refined. We have a hope that is refined. A hope that is refined. God refines us, and that's, that's his love towards us. When you see God refining you and working you through struggles and pain and hurt, that's the love of God. 
You see, Peter doesn't, doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't lighten things up. He gets to the point. That's what I love about the Bible. It just gets to the point. Peter's about to get real. You see, sometimes in, in the Christian life, we can paint over other people's struggles and hurts and pains. We say things like, like someone's struggling with something, you're like, it's going to be okay. Have you ever had somebody say that? And you're like, no, it's not. It's going to be okay. Here's, here's the one I love. When you, you're going through something and you're sharing your feelings with something, and they, and they look at you, and this person's clueless about life, and they say, I understand. You ever been there before? Like, don't tell me you understand. You don't understand a thing I'm going through. Peter here's about ready to get real. Peter doesn't shy away from the fact that our, our present situation, family, our present situation can become difficult at times. Anybody had difficulty? Yes. He says this, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, I love that transition. In this you rejoice. He's talking about what the resurrection of Jesus, salvation in the Trinity. In this you rejoice. Let's get real for a second. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, here's the point now, you have been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith. Then Peter thinks up an illustration. I can imagine he's, he's dictating this to Silas. It's like more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Then he comes back around, may be found a result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we go through some stuff, church? Because God is honing, refining, sharpening, testing our faithfulness to him. Notice in this passage that Peter's going from, from big things to small things, okay? At the beginning of the section, he's, he moves from the eternal reality of our inheritance, so we see the big picture, right? We have this inheritance that's, that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's, that's an eternal inheritance. To now Peter zeroes in on, on what's going This is what's going on right in front of you in the present situation, And it reminds us of this. You see, sometimes we get so caught up in the here and now and what's going on. We're, we're looking straight down and we need to lift our eyes up and look at the line of eternity, right? You can't even look at the line of eternity because it's infinite. It goes on forever. And we have this little blip on the radar in light of eternity. It may be a big deal to you right now, but Peter says, though now what? For a little while. He's saying, family, I started out with the eternal picture. Now you're dealing with this little blip on the radar. And I don't want to belittle what you're going through, but lift your eyes up to the horizon and see what Christ is going to accomplish. See what your eternity is going to look like. And then look back down in your situation and view it in light of those terms. He says this, in this we rejoice, pointing back to our inheritance, even though in the present we may be grieved by various trials. The, the instruction or encouragement here is that hope should lead to our joy. See, rejoicing is the result of having what? Joy. I rejoice when I have joy within me. 
Peter says, in this you rejoice, though you have been grieved by trials. See, now in the letter, we come to a pivot point in the passage. From Peter's greeting, rooting salvation in the Trinity to, to the living hope of the resurrection that results in praising God, now Peter focuses on the issue behind the scenes, which is suffering and trials in the life of a follower of Christ. The pivot point is now this. Peter proclaims, it is actually good for you to suffer because it proves the genuineness of your faith. That's a difficult truth to digest, isn't it? The question comes up, are you going to hold fast to your faith in the midst of trials and suffering, or are you going to flee from God at the first sign of danger? Like, this isn't worth it. I'm out of here. There's two ways to go. And if I'm honest, this is, I believe, one of the great dangers in, in the church in America. I know this sounds crazy, but it's, it's that we're not really persecuted for our faith. And so it's fairly easy to be a follower of Jesus, especially the way that we oftentimes practice our faith, which is just, just be quiet and polite and don't say anything about Jesus or what the Word of God teaches. And so the Christian life can be fairly easy. Now, it's becoming less and less easy. As the culture moves more and more towards darkness. But in light of the rest of the world, I mean, you go, go practice your faith in, in China, right? You're going to be hiding. Think about what's happened to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Many of them wiped out for their faith. And so I think one of the, the, the dangers of, of the church in, in America is that it is, it is somewhat easy to practice our faith. And we, we thank God for that. I don't want, who wants to go through persecution? Not me. God, my faith's genuine, I promise. Don't take me through that. However, that, that refining persecution and suffering on, on behalf of Christ will help to sharpen our faith in him to know like, yes, I really want to follow you because it's going to cost me this. These trials not only test the genuineness of our faith, but they also refine it. They, they purify it. Peter illustrates with gold. Who here likes, likes the gold rush shows? I love the gold rush shows. You know what I'm talking about? Like the ones on discovery and I'm the only one. Okay. My bad. I didn't realize there's like 35 different Gold Rush shows now. You know, it's like Gold Rush in Arizona, Gold Rush in Alaska. You guys know what shows I'm talking about, right? Okay, good. I feel like I'm all by myself here. All right. I mean, they're terrible. They find like one flake of gold every year. In the Gold Rush show, you, when they do actually find some gold, they, they put it in this little stone holder thing, and they put the little dust. You know, they, they blow up a whole mountain, and they end up with like a little handful of gold. And they put it in a kiln, and they, they fire it. They heat it up super, super hot. I, I'm not too much of a science guy, so I'm sure it's like, you know, thousands of degrees. And what happens to the gold? All the impurities come out, and it's refined. It's liquefied. Okay, the heat is applied to it. Okay, do you guys get the imagery that Peter's getting at here? But here's the thing. He says this. He says even gold will perish. 
And so unlike gold, which can eventually perish when placed under extreme conditions, our hope, our faith is more precious than even the most precious metal. Because as we were promised, the inheritance is secure. It's kept, it's protected, it's guarded. It's not an inheritance that church is, is contingent on, on market conditions or inflation or a presidential election. It is a hope that is secure in the heavenly places, guarded by God himself. James says it this way, verses 2 to 4. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a crazy statement, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does testing do for our faith but refine us? We talked about sanctification last week. The testing of our faith, trial and suffering, refines us. It sanctifies us. It makes us more like Jesus, and that's a good thing. It shows us who true believers are. Those who hold fast to God and to the promises of his word. Testing purifies and perfects us. And lastly... We have a hope that is looked toward, or I probably should have put forward-looking. I think that would have sounded better. A hope that is forward-looking. Listen to the way that Peter transitions the the end of this letter. Okay, so the idea is just kind of looking ahead, looking to what the the promise is. He says this in, in verses 8 to 12. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice that with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now listen to this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, okay? So Peter's pointing back now to the Old Testament prophets. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. He says this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, hear this church, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says this amazing thing, things into which angels long to look. I love that section right there. So we have, beginning in this part, we have the blessing of faith, even though these particular followers of Jesus have not seen him. Okay, They haven't seen Jesus bodily. Peter did, but these scattered strangers up in this area of Asia Minor, they hadn't witnessed Jesus in the flesh. And Peter blesses them that they believed in Jesus even though they hadn't seen him personally. Who here in the room has seen Jesus? We haven't, have we? We have this same blessing that though we have not seen him, we believe in him. It reminded me as I was reading through this section of none other than doubting Thomas, right? Thomas, I don't believe Jesus is raised from that. Until he comes here, I'm going to put my finger in his side. That's kind of weird. I see his hands. What does Jesus say to, to Thomas after Thomas believes 
Jesus says to him, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It's a powerful thing to place your faith and trust in someone you haven't seen. We also see this in this passage. We see the blessings, uh, the blessing of the prophets who wrote of the coming Messiah, that is the Old Testament scriptures. And it says that they searched out, they searched the scripture to understand the ways of God. They were wrestling with the word of God. Like, what is this pointing to, God? Where's the Messiah in this passage? What's going on? They were wrestling with the word of God. It reminded me too, in, in the New Testament, when Paul's preaching, he preaches to these people called the Bereans. You guys remember the Bereans? And what did the Bereans do? They, they tested what Paul was teaching to the word of God, right? Why? Because they understood the word of God. We get both of these ideas in this passage that, that the prophets were passionate about the word of God. They studied the word of God and they searched for Jesus in the scriptures. Okay, the Bereans were passionate about the word of God and they tested what the teachers were teaching against the word of God. Church, I, am, I beg of you, test what I am teaching you and I'm preaching to you against the word of God. Know your Bible. Search the scriptures. And then the last thing, the blessing, we see the blessing of knowing even the heavenly beings, it says the angels long to look Hear this. This is what you have. The angels long to look into what we have, the salvation that we have in Jesus. Isn't that a mind-blowing statement? I'm the only one. It's mind-blowing. The angels long to look into these things. The, the literal Greek translates... The angels leaned down to take a look. That's what the word of God says. The, the angels are even getting, what's going on down? What's God doing in that guy? He's a total fool. And God changed his heart and gave him salvation in Jesus Christ. This is amazing. That's what the angels are doing. And they're eagerly awaiting what's to come. They know Jesus is coming back, but they don't know when. And so it, it's a forward-looking. They're, they're eager to see what God's going to do next. Here's the other thing. They've never experienced salvation in Jesus. Scripture teaches us that the angels that rebelled against God, okay, they never can be saved. They're, they're demons. They are in the army of Satan. They can never be saved through Jesus. And so the angels that remain faithful to God are looking on to this and say, this is amazing. Literally, they're bending over to take a look and see what's, what is going on down there now. What's God up to next? What person is he going to save now? Isn't that amazing? At church in Christ, the angels lo are longing to look on what's going on in your life, the salvation that you have. No wonder Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord. Even angels long to look into the salvation that I have. And so the question remains as we conclude, <clears throat> Family, are you sharing this hope with other people? Are you sharing it with others? 
You see, in Scripture, in Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we learn that Jesus bodily raised from the dead, so he's, he's this resurrected God-man walking around. And after his resurrection, he gave a command to his followers. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'm going to listen to the guy that died and raised from the dead, right? And then he says this, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, Jesus had not just some authority, not just a little bit of authority, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth. So everywhere has been given to me. And then he, so he says this. So as a result of that, do this. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Are you sharing, church, this hope with others? Back, in, back into the context. Why do you think these people were being persecuted for their faith? Why? Because, I'm certain it's because they were, they were sitting, navel-gazing in their little holy huddles, reading the shack and singing Kumbaya, right? No. Because they were out proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to their friends and neighbors and enemies. They were speaking of the true Son of God, Jesus, which was offensive and dangerous. Could you, did you notice the title, Son of God? In that time, Caesar, okay, the king, the leader, the most powerful man in the world, what was his title? Do you know? Son of God. And these Christians were walking around and saying, no, we know the true Son of God, Jesus Christ. We're not going to bow to Caesar We'll only bow to Jesus. Their hope in Jesus had given them something greater to live for. Church, we have something greater to live for. They had a hope that calmed their present situation. They were dying for their faith. Do you guys hear me? They had a hope that provided purpose in their life. They had a hope that gave strength to the weak. These were a bunch of nobodies. And each one of us sits here because they were faithful to proclaim the gospel. Church, who are you proclaiming the gospel to in your life? When was the last time you talked to your neighbor about Jesus? They had a hope that so radically transformed them that they were willing to lay down their lives for the resurrected King, Jesus. Family, we're called to the same task. I beg of you, don't take your faith lightly. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Church, we have to stop messing around and we have to make disciples. We have to speak truth in dark places and we have to love people in our society and our culture that everybody else says they're unlovable. 
We're called to do this. And we're not just called to make converts that walk an aisle and pray a prayer and then they walk out and they're never transformed. We're called, it says, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them what? To obey all that I have commanded. God takes his word seriously. Obey all that I have commanded. Church, all of us are called to this task, not just me as a pastor. You see, the problem is pastors go, well, I'm an equipper, so I equip the people to go out and share the gospel and make disciples. I don't really actually do those things. And then the church sits here and says, well, he's the pastor. He's the one that should go out and make disciples. And then we don't end up doing anything, do we? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Each and every one of us are called to this purpose and task. If you are a follower of Christ, I beg of you. People are dying and going to hell because we're comfortable. This is serious. Go and make disciples for the cause of Christ and for his glory.